book, Joshua. This comes after the first books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then the next one is Joshua, and it's about God's people who've come out of slavery in Egypt coming into the promised land to inhabit it. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 14 this morning, and uh, the text is there in the bulletin. You know, I know I've mentioned this a time or two, but uh, last summer, one of the highlights for me of the whole summer, and I had some extended time off, was rereading The Lord of the Rings. And um, I first read it before Henry was born, and then, of course, all the movies came out, and then that's what becomes normal to you. But as with most things, the books are better than the movie. And uh, But going back through that, I, I, I got to something at the very, very end that just grabbed me. And I've even bounced this off a few other people that know the Lord of the Rings pretty well. And they said, ah. Like one of them started tearing up when I said this. Uh, there's there's a, a little passage toward the end when Aragorn, you know, has been established as the king. Sorry if that's a spoiler. Okay. You, you, I have no sympathy at this point if you haven't gotten to that point. But uh, Aragorn's been established as king. And, uh, and, and I can't remember which character asked this, but someone said, you know, at some point will you come back and visit... Uh, you know, near the Shire. And I just, you know, the first time I read it through, there was so much coming at me, I, di- I didn't catch that. But when I was reading back through, I thought, I wonder if he ever did that. And uh, there are all these uh, appendices at the, at the end of the, the, the book. And so there's one that gives this extended timeline of Middle Earth. So I went and found him there and found out he did go back and visit, went to the Brandywine Bridge, and he met up with Sam and big reunion. So then I just, I just kept reading along, and then I got to the very last entry. I'm about to cry, tell it to you. Okay. He get to the very last entry, and it says that, that just after all the fellowship except for two have died, um, and, and Aragorn at that, part, at that point is called King Elisar, and it says that he had uh, Mary and Pippin uh, buried right next to him. And so that all that's left are Legolas and Gimli, who, you know, had been at odds and then became fast friends. And at the very end, it describes that they get into a boat and they head to the Grey Havens and then the Fellowship of the Ring is over. And just, ugh, ugh. you know, reading that, I just, I felt like I was reading a death. And again, when I bounced this off a couple of people that were familiar with it, that one of them literally teared up saying, he just said, I know. I know. You know, it's like, it's horrible. Um, the, if, if, if we will see it, in a sense, there's a little bit of a moment like that in this passage because when, when uh, the people of Israel got close to the promised land, Moses sent all these spies over. And, and they were representative spies from the different tribes, you know, the different tribes of Israel to go over and scout it out and then to come back and give a report. And... Almost all of them gave this report of, you know, it's, oh no, they've got gigantic cities and every scary enemy is there, Hittites and Canaanites. And then the, the, the clincher was the Anakim are there, the sons of Anak, and those are like the giants. Goliath was from that line. And they, so they're in a dither and they get all the people in a dither and there were two spies that said, We've got it. It was Joshua and Caleb. And God says, because 
I'm paraphrasing, because they trusted me to keep my word and everyone else spread this report of fear, you who feared that you would go in there and your children would be killed, all of you will die off except for those two men. And your children will be the one who will go into the land that you thought would be too dangerous for them. And that's what happens. They're in the wilderness for about 38 more years. Joshua and Caleb basically are the only survivors of the old generation. And in this text, in a way, they're coming back together after just years of being together and fighting and seeing these things together. And in a sense, they're saying goodbye so that Caleb can go do what God said that one day he would do. Now, I'm going to read the passage, but before I read it, very important, and please hear this. My, my preaching professor used to talk about what he called the deadly bees. It sounds like killer bees. He said the deadly bees are sermons where somebody takes a Bible character and they look at someone who is brave uh, or who, who obeyed or who persevered, and then the takeaway is, now be like that person. And this professor said, you know, that sounds great, but what that leaves you with is pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and that is not good news. What I want us to look at is not like, hey, wasn't Caleb awesome, and why don't you go out and be awesome too? Let's close in prayer. What I want to look at is, why was Caleb Caleb? I mean, we could say, why was Moses Moses? Why was Paul Paul? Did they just genetically show up different? Or are we learning something about God who gives people what they need? Because if that's the case, then that is helpful to all of us. Joshua chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. Now, this is coming after we're skipping about seven chapters of military conquests and divvying out of the promised land to the different tribes of Israel. But we're picking up in Joshua chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave 
Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as, as we hear your word, we think about what you, Lord Jesus, said to Peter after your resurrection, and you asked him if he loved you, and he insisted that he did, and you said, well, then feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And Father, how we, the lambs, the sheep, we need this food. We need this food or we will die. And so please feed us from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jake uh, mentioned this a little while ago before the prayer that we, uh, we had General Assembly here a few weeks ago, our big denominational meeting. And there was an interesting kind of side meeting that happened at the, at the TD Convention Center where we held that. And uh, two pastors, two very influential pastors from our denomination just uh, had a, a, about an hour, hour and a half long two-man panel talking about interacting with our culture. And uh, one of them was Ligon Duncan, who grew up here in, uh, grew up at Second Pres, hop, skip, and a jump away, and now pastors of the church where I grew up in Mississippi. And Tim Keller, who pastors Redeemer Pres in New York City, is known to a lot of you from his writing and, and his preaching. But uh, Tim Keller started this, this panel by talking about, all right, culture, where are we culturally? Like, what, what is our cultural moment like? And he began just ticking off these different areas of culture where we're in crisis and sort of explaining why is it a crisis right now. And he talked about the intellectual world. He talked about the campus. He talked about the corporate world, the financial world. He talked about the artistic world. He talked about what's going on in uh, the lives of our children and youth. And I mean, it, uh, you, you think you're kind of up on that. And then when you hear someone really distill it down and even give you stats on it, it's very overwhelming. Um, he talked about the fact, for instance, that growing up, like this is even my childhood, when you grow up in the Cold War, the bad guys are atheists. Okay, the bad guys are anti-religion. So just even people that may not be that spiritually minded sort of go, whoo, okay, don't want to be that. But now, from our vantage point, the bad guys are extremely religious. So what's the cultural ripple effects of that? Of like, whoo, when people get too serious about their religion, you get violence, you get problems, you get, uh, you get t people trying to take over, you get imperialism. That's our cultural moment. And I had several people who attended this thing who came away and went, man, I'm depressed. <laughs> that's one of the reasons, that's not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons why this text is extremely relevant. Because, and, and, I, and I mentioned this, I mean, it was just fresh on my mind because of the sermon, but even in praying for the parents of these children who were being baptized, you know, 
It's always been a hard time to bring children into the world. It always has been in a fallen world. But if God really is who He reveals Himself to be in the Scriptures, and if He is able to give us what He says He can and will give us, this is a great time to bring children into the world. It's a great time to be alive. And that's not me being rah-rah. It actually is. And so, just with, with that, I guess, template, you might say, with that template, I want to go back to this passage and think about, all right, who were the original readers of this account? You know, we tend to get our Bible and go, okay, this is for me to sit here and read. Who were the original readers of the book of Joshua? It would have been Israelites who had recently, and still it's kind of fairly recent, settled into the promised land, and already the Israelite culture is in decline. You know, you would have thought, wow, wipe out those Canaanites, wipe out all those idol worshipers, give people their own homes, their own vineyards, their own farms, and now we can get stability and, you know, spiritually things are going to take off and they just begin to erode almost immediately. And God lets you read about this man. Now, is it, again, is the, the aim for us to come away and go, wow, that guy was fantastic. And I think I want to be fantastic. So I'm going to be like Caleb. Is that the takeaway? It's good to have role models. It's good to have people to watch and imitate. But the text is pushing us to see what did God give Caleb that in some ways is not unique to Caleb? What does God give to his people when he gives them this thing called faith? And we've already seen this in the life of a surprising character, a prostitute named Rahab, who has faith. The, the, the only way that we can account for it is that God gave it to her. And it's a strong faith. What do you learn about the faith that God gives people, His people, in this text? I want to look at three things. And this may be the second time this has ever happened in my ministerial life. I have three points, and they all start with the same letter. I, this may, I, I don't know, I can't, I, I think I'm showing off for my in-laws who are here, so I do this every week, uh, Trey and Jane, it always is this neatly divided and structured. <clears throat> but here's what I want to look at, um, faith and the Word, faith and waiting, faith and work. Now by faith, I don't, I don't mean blind faith or a, my just sort of my believing in belief, I mean the kind that God gives to His people that you read about in the Word. Faith in the Word, faith and waiting, faith and work. All right, first off, faith in the Word. This, this is such a great scene. Um, verse 6, actually in Hebrew, when Caleb starts talking, he says the subject, the pronoun you, he says it twice. And, and it's... It, it must be an eyewitness account to get this little detail of these two old friends and warriors who've been through a ton together. And Caleb comes up to him and says, you, of all people, you know that after all this fighting, after all that we've been through, there's some unfinished business, isn't there? And he's right. It even says that in the books of Moses where God himself said, Caleb... Caleb trusted me. Caleb will receive an inheritance that none of his peers did. 
why was Caleb so confident? Did you catch what kept coming up when he started talking? First off, look in verse 7. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Now, that's a strange thing to say. If someone sends you out to do reconnaissance, to do intelligence, you're not supposed to, like, come back and say, all right, I'd like to share what's on my heart now. Um... No, it's like, no, we don't want to know. We want to know, you know, troops and geography and resources and routes. That, we need hard facts. But he says, Moses sent me out, and I came back, and I gave the word that was in my heart. What's he ta- is, he, is he talking about this real subjective thing in him? Well, in a way, but what was it made of? You know, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. All right, what was Caleb's heart full of? Look in verse 6. You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God? Look in verse verse 11. Excuse me. Look in verse um, 10. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said. Look in verse 12. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. Did Caleb just show up and he's just kind of an alpha male and he has a big C on his superhero outfit and he just, he's always the guy that just is confident when no one else is? Did he just show up different? And the answer is no. God enabled him to do what God's people have the ability to do. To take God at his word. Even when everything at you is screaming what God said can't happen. What, what God said is not realistic. I mean, every one of those spies that went out, when Joshua and Caleb went out, they saw the same stuff. They came back terrified. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, we can do it. In fact, it's amazing. This is in the book of Numbers when you read it. It says that all the people, their hearts are melting and they're fearful and they're just kind of in an uproar. And it's, I, this may be on my mind because I saw a Jack Black movie yesterday, but I, if this was a movie, I could almost picture it being Jack Black just going, hey, 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 hey. We've totally got this. <laughs> because they, they, they are melting about the sons of Anak are there, and they're the giants, and they're ex- extremely fearful, and who can stand against the Anakim? And this is in Numbers chapter 13. Uh, Caleb says, we should leave right now and take them. Not run away. We should run toward them right now. Because God said to. Because God said to. Now, what are we learning about faith? Faith is the God-given means to interpret what you're seeing by what God says. And that sounds kind of simple. I mean, that sounds kind of like Christianity 101. It's not so simple. Our default mode is to live by sight. Faith is the God-given means to interpret what you're seeing by what God says. Now, that is relevant for every one of us. I mean, if you're here and either you're, you're not, you know you're not a Christian 
or, or you're, you're wrestling with it. Of I, I feel like there's some transition going on in me, but I, I don't think my flag has been planted yet. I, something's going on, but I don't know what. It may be that as you look at your life that you're feeling profound regrets. That maybe you've kind of been going on youthful enthusiasm up till now, and now you're looking back and there's profound regret, and you're, you're remembering things that you wish you could take back. You're remembering things that you, feel, you can feel that it has tainted your life, and you feel like nothing could make me clean. I've got to make myself clean for God to like me. You know what? You can't. None of us can. None of us can. So what do we do? It says in the New Testament, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, but what if I did this to my girlfriend? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What if I did this to the people I love most? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What if I did this with my body? He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Even if everything in your memory and your feelings and your world and your friendships is saying you can't ever be clean, that's faith, is to take him at his word and say, what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling has to be interpreted in the light of his word. And you know what? This is, this is amazing. In the scriptures, faith is not something that you manufacture. It's something that God gives to you. And if you are here and you know you're not a Christian or, you, you know, I, I don't know what I am, but I'm in transition, ask him to give you that God-given means that instead of what I'm seeing calling all the shots, that what you say calls the shots and I interpret what I see through that. But this is just as relevant for Christians. You know? Uh, I, you know, I was thinking about this. Our... I don't know how far back to go, but let's say like our great-grandparents, if, if, if they were Christians, if they were interested in, in Jesus being known by as many people as possible, they looked at the continent of Africa and just said basically, it's not working. It's not working and it's not going to work. It's the dark continent. It just eats, it eats missions. And now thinking about <laughs> members of our church are either there or going right now. And I mentioned, you know, just even in my own youth, I grew up in the Cold War. And now my peers and the children of my peers are going or have gone to the former Soviet Union to make Christ known. I started thinking about that. I thought, you know, if that's the trajectory, that means that it could be, and we're not there yet, but like my children could be going to missions trips in China and not having to be secretive about it. Like have just backyard Bible club in Beijing or Shanghai, and, and no one has to conceal it. And I, then I started thinking, what if that means that my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren could be having backyard Bible club in Yemen or North Korea? And if I'm still around, just going like, I can't even believe that that's possible. <laughs> And they're all, you know, I don't know what will be like Facebook or Instagram, but they'll have pictures of them with kids and, you know, just you know, like doing little fake gang signs that we do in pictures. And, 
you know, with the North Korean children or the Yemenese children. You know, just, just because, why? Because somebody or waves of people went first. And I don't want to downplay the, the, the fact that on the front end, it can be pretty dicey. As one of the church fathers said, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But that for those who went and went and went, and even if it seemed like these people, this culture, this nation is gobbling up our efforts, there were people who said, I don't care what I'm seeing. I don't mean that I'm not learning from the culture and trying to figure out how to contextualize the gospel. But I mean, if it's fail, 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 opposition, 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 we're going with what God said. That the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And that we're in, in, His people are indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit and we're His witnesses. That's what we're going with. That is relevant for all of us. I mean, that's as relevant as the family member, the co-worker, the neighbor who finds out where the Christian is coming from spiritually and is outwardly hostile to it. To go with what God said. He said, you love your neighbor. You love your neighbor. And you be who you are in Christ. And you let me show myself as God. Whatever you're seeing, you let me be God. Faith in the Word. Um, faith in waiting. Verse 10. Caleb says, And now, behold, we have a couple of Caleb's in our congregation. Do y'all, are y'all just incredibly self conscious right now? You are? I'm sorry. Okay. Be strong. Verse 10, And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as He said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. A 45-year wait. Now we can read that and go, yeah, 45 years, long time to wait. That, that's not really doing justice to what the text tells us. I mean, think about living in the wilderness for 45 years a military existence for a lot of it. You've probably heard Jim Gaffigan's thing on camping. You know, he says that uh, when we see somebody that's in a bad mood, we say, well, he's not a happy camper. He said, yeah, the only happy campers are the ones walking to their cars <laughs> when it's over. You know, Caleb and Joshua have been camping for decades. No, no home, no just, no just sit down in your chair and, and be... 45, think about this, 45 years of watching his peers, we don't think about this, watching his peers die. The rest of his generation did not enter. Except for Joshua, Caleb lost all his peers. Hardship of the wilderness, the hardship of war and battle when it's close up. It is easy to fudge when you're waiting. Life of Abraham, you know, hey, I'm going to make of you a great nation, but I'm 75 years old. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And after about 10 or 11 years, well, maybe, maybe I need to have a child by someone that's not my wife. Wrong plan. And then he does have a child by his wife 
the son of promise, Isaac, 25 years after the promise. Very, very hard to wait, isn't it? Faith is the God-given ability to interpret what you're seeing by what God has said. And here's what that means. Even if I don't know He's going to give me the exact thing I'm asking for or waiting for, that I need resolution for, I know at the end that even if there's been weeping, at the end there's joy. And that means different things for different people. Uh, Douglas Kelly, who's a brilliant theologian up the road in uh, Reform Seminary in Charlotte, talked about when he was in grad school and he met a, a woman in Scotland. He said she's a very simple woman, not very learned, and that she taught him about prayer by just doing it. And he went to her house to have a meal, and she shared with him that it was a very special day for her because she had just received a letter from her best friend. They were in each other's weddings, and her best friend had just become a Christian after this woman had been praying for her for 53 years. Sometimes that's what waiting looks like. You get to see the answer at the end. Sometimes you don't. I mean, what, what if you were an African-American follower of Jesus Christ in the Jim Crow South, and you're reading your Bible, and you get to where Jesus says, hey, will not God give justice to his elect? And you're looking around at your life going, I, I would love that. I don't know when that's going to happen. You might die still waiting on it knowing that the promise is you will have joy in the end. But faith is the ability, the God-given ability, to wait. Because what God says is true. Man, that's hard. I think waiting and forgiveness are the two hardest things in the Christian life. That's my opinion. They're both forms of suffering. You might be here, you might be the parent of a wayward child... And just even hearing the words that I said about God saying again and again in the covenant that I'll be a God to you and to your seed. I'll be a God to you and to your offspring that it almost pains you to hear that because it's so at odds with what you're seeing. And what I want to appeal to you to do is to interpret what you're seeing in your family in light of what God has said. Third thing, briefly, faith and work, um, verses 11 and 12. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as the strength was then for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord had said. For someone who was reading through Joshua, earlier they would have read about <clears throat> Joshua and his troops went in and they displaced a bunch of the Anakim. They killed a bunch of them. But there were a few cities they didn't overcome. And those guys are the ones who've gathered up and sort of entrenched themselves at what became Hebron. 
In other words, these aren't just the Anakim, these are the surviving, dug-in Anakim, and they're mad. And Caleb says, after 45 years of camping, I'm ready to go take that. Francis Schaeffer, who um, he died in the early 80s, he was a, a pastor, a writer, sort of a philosopher, theologian, kind of a generalist, author. He said that the, the thing that's going to take down the American church will be not just open hostility. The thing that will take down the American church is what he called the pursuit of personal peace and affluence. Where it's the person who believes in Jesus Christ, and boy, do I relate to this, but they just want to sit in front of a high-definition flat screen and watch what they like and have kind of buy them what they like to eat and drink and just ride it out. And there's a lot of work for us to do. You know? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Jesus said, look around you. The fields are white under harvest. And even when I say that to you guys, sometimes deep down, I don't feel it. I feel like, man, there ought to be a gazillion times more people becoming new Christians. And because I feel that way, and because that's what I see, then I'm interpreting what God says in light of what I'm seeing. Don't do that. Brian, <laughs> don't do that, friends. Flip it. Interpret what we are seeing in light of what God has said. I mean, th there is work for us in our vocations to take every thought captive for Christ, to work with excellence in every vocation, Let me end with this. I, um, I, I recently saw a, a, a documentary about the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles. And it was about a unit, and I, I caught it halfway through, so I don't, I don't know which particular company or unit, but they got pinned down by the Taliban, and they were completely surrounded, and just the Taliban were just, just pounding them. And they were pounding back. And, but it went on so long and so hard that they, were, they shot up all their ammunition. And then the Apache helicopter comes in to drop off ammo, and it drops it in the wrong place so that it's out between them and the Taliban. It's just a uh, just bad situation, getting, becoming a worse situation. And one of the guys on this documentary that knows the history of the 101st, he said, you know, there's a part of the ethos of the Screaming Eagles that, that I can't quote his exact words, but he says... Their ethos is, they've got us surrounded. Bless their hearts. <laughs> and I thought about, if you've seen Band of Brothers, that's the 101st Airborne, easy company. You know, there's a scene where one of the guys tells uh, Lieutenant Winter, whoever, you know we're surrounded. And Winter says, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. I want to say this not in an us versus them way. I want to say this as we're the people of God who are salt and light. We're the yeast making its way into the whole batch of dough. We're the ones that are making known the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're surrounded. It's supposed to be that way. 
And if you go by what you feel and what you see, you're going to lose heart. I guarantee you. And I have my days where I do. The beautiful thing about God is He gives to those who ask Him the means to trust Him, to interpret what we're seeing by what He has said. And if you're sitting here saying, I, I, whatever that is, I don't have it, cry out to Him for that. Don't try to manufacture it. We can't. Cry out to Him to give you what the Bible calls faith whether that's for Him to just bring you to Himself and make you clean or to do the thing that God has called you to do, but it's extremely intimidating. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we sit in our downtown and there are challenges of poverty and there are challenges of affluence, There are challenges of race. There are challenges of great education and lack of education. Would you give us civic courage to love our neighbor, to move toward others, to bring the kingdom into all the different corners, the lighted ones and the unlighted ones of our city, not because we're great, but because you are great. And through weak sinners, you do great things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.